welcome to another episode of Intelligence for Your Life, the podcast. I'm Gib Gerard. Our guest this week is Dr. Greg Henriquez. He is a professor of psychology at James Madison University. We are going to talk about his theory of knowledge. It's a framing of psychology that will help you to reframe uh, your approach to, to your thoughts, your behaviors, the way that uh, the way that you manage stress and trauma. Uh, it is he is a it's a very deep conversation. He go we go way into the weeds about how to understand how our brains work, how our culture works, how our society works. Um, but but the good news is we come out the other end with ways that you can use his approach to really change uh, your your reaction to your emotions and to the to stressful stimuli. So very excited to bring this to you. Uh, there is a lot of useful stuff in this. It gets a little dense in the middle, but I promise you it's worth it if you stick through it to the end. A uh, couple other things coming up in a second, but first, a quick word from our sponsors, including, but not limited to, Rocket Mortgage from Quicken Loans. Once again, want to say a big thank you to our sponsors for making today possible. A couple other things I want to talk to you guys about. Hey, we've talked about this before, but it's live now. You can actually get John's newest book, Relentless. If you go to store.tesh.com, you can get an autographed copy. If you use offer code PODCAST, that's PODCAST, like what you're listening to right now, you can get 10% off your entire order from the store. We also have the latest, and I'm on this. The latest PBS special, um, uh, which songs and stories from the grand piano. I sing a couple. I sing a song on that. You can check it out again. Uh, that's in store.tesh.com. There's a link to get there in the show notes and use offer code podcast to get ten percent off uh, you, everything that you uh, that that you order there. Hey, here's a couple quick pieces of intelligence before we get to Dr. Greg Henriquez. Uh, first, there's a silver lining to this pandemic. When things shut down, it's actually saved thousands of animals from being roadkill. Early in March and April, traffic plunged by nearly 70%. At the same time, the number of car crashes involving deer, bears, and other large animals also dropped. UC Davis analyzed the data and found that in Maine, for example, there were 44% fewer roadkill victims. In California, nearly 60% fewer mountain lions were killed by cars. And overall, about 20% of the 1 billion animals killed annually on roads in the United States alone have now survived. That's 200 million animal lives that have been spared from rats to raccoons, possums, turtles, moose, birds, squirrel, moose and squirrel. By the way, I don't care so much that the rats are surviving. Fewer rats. Fraser Schilling is an ecologist at UC Davis. He says simply driving less for a couple of months is probably the biggest conservation action we've ever taken as a country. So there you go. Uh, Also, if you're like me, you've been missing baseball. Well, the first dozen games that aired on ESPN had ratings that were 34% higher than last year. And Fox Sports also saw a double-digit rise in ratings. The first game between the Yankees and the Nationals was the most watched regular season game since 2011 on any network. And baseball is also attracting younger viewers than usual. Very excited that baseball is back, even just a little bit. My kids watch with me. Even games that are only shown locally, not nationally. Huge ratings. Games from Houston, Detroit, Minnesota have seen viewership rise over 50% over last year. That's according to Nielsen, of course. While ratings for the Los Angeles Dodgers, the greatest team in the history of baseball, and the Houston Astros, cheaters, nearly doubled. So there you go, folks. Two quick pieces of intelligence, things you can use to start conversations on Zoom this week. Here here it is. Very excited to bring you this interview with Greg Henriquez. Dr. Greg Henriquez, professor of psychology at JMU, the James Madison University, Thank you so much for making time for us today. We really appreciate it. It's really great to be here. Thanks for having me. 
so I, I want to dive right into this. You have this uh, the 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 theory of knowledge system that you have put together, um, and it is it is your magnum opus. This is your way of what you call unifying. Uh, the unifying the pro and solving the fundamental problem of psychology. So before we even get into anything else, we, the lay people of the world, have to understand what the uh, what the fundamental problem of psychology actually is, so that we can dive into this. Great, man. Thank you so much for for asking. I really, I really do think uh, that folks should know this in general. Um, so. If you take a Psych 101 course, okay, they will. The vast majority will say, "Hey, here's what psychology is. It's the science of behavior and mental process." Right. Okay? In fact, that's what we we learned. That's exactly what they there say. Go. First okay. day of psychology. First day of psychology. Then they say, "Hey, you know, what the key word is science." And then they start talking to you about the importance of how to think scientifically mm -hmm. and how to measure stuff and. Uh, science is really asked questions differently than folk psychology. And then they go off and then they start sharing lots of different possible uh, findings. And then they'll tell you about different ways to approach the science of psychology. And then you're off and running. Mm -hmm. Okay. What they don't tell you is that psychologists do not agree at all um, on what is meant by the terms behavior and mental process. Mm. Okay. So they don't tell you that we actually don't have good shared definitions of those two very key terms. Okay? So so basically what is going on in your brain versus what is happening with your body, what, what is observable on the outside? Is that what right. you mean? Well, that's, the, that's a great starting point for the distinction because they say, well, well, there's what's observable from the outside, which by the way is really important from a point of view of science because science is based on what's observable from the outside. Absolutely. Right. Okay. Hypothesis, then, observation. Yeah. Right. right. And then we all have to observe that. And by the way, that's actually why we're interested in behavior, because behavior is the way we can turn right. what they think of as the mind into what we can see. Right. Okay. Right. So there you go. And then that's that's the basic key. But what they have then done is they've then defined mind through behavior because of the needs of science. Okay. 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 So, so, so we develop this this distinction that you are. Are you alleging mm -hmm. that this distinction is unnecessary or or f a falsely it's, placed distinction? Right. Well, it's convoluted. So, okay. right. It's convoluted. But, but we but, so we create it for the sense uh, for for the sake mm -hmm. of what we can observe and how we can then therefore structure our uh, structure the entire science because right. we have these observable uh, points these these things that we can the behaviors. The things that we can observe, right? right. So, right. so then, is, is there's a relationship between what we can observe and whatever we imagine the mind to be, mm -hmm. which we are saying sort of we can't really observe it, okay? Got it. And then you have so what all I'm saying is is that different models of psychology, what are actually called paradigms, a mm -hmm. model is a paradigm, have then answered the question about what is behavior versus mind in all these different ways. So there's no there's no consensus about what we mean between exactly these terms. Okay. Okay. I'll give you a, a real quick example, okay, is that there are called behaviorists who don't think that mental process at any level is a scientific term. They think of psychology simply as the science of behavior and leave it at that. Right, 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 for sure. Okay. 
Well, there you go. You have a whole, which are about only five per 10% of psychologists these days are behaviorists. But for a long time, people scientifically didn't even think that there was a good term that mental processes were a good science term. And there's still behaviorists to this day who argue we should give up the concept entirely. So they don't even believe that that's a, uh, they have a language system so that the concept of mental process is not a good scientific mm -hmm. term. Okay. Oh, uh -huh. There are other psycho. Oh, go ahead. No, no, I just, so, so, we we have this this idea that you're alleging that the the, the distinction between behavior and mental processes is is a, is a convoluted one and that we should have a uh, have a have a right. a different delineation point or no delineation yes. point between mental right. processes and behaviors well right actually what we're interested in according to my system uh, what we psychologists are interested in should be called mental behaviors interesting Interesting, huh? right? And which so, are which are the things that are going on in our brains that are that may or may not, but is of no consequence, may or may not be observable as, to an outsider. Well, it's actually it's both mental behavior. There's overt mental behavior. Mm -hmm. Okay, overt mental behavior is what you see when you see an animal acting on its environment right. and exhibiting functional awareness and response. Right. Okay. okay. So let me give you let me give you an example. So you have two cats falling out of a tree. Mm -hmm. Okay. One of them's dead and one of them's alive. Okay. Yeah. As they're falling, they're both exhibiting physical behavior. Okay. okay. You're, you're, in other words, you're dropping and you're like, oh, I can see them change. Okay. But one of them orient one of them engages in a dead cat bounce, and you'd need a physicist to tell you exactly why that behavior happened the way it did. Right. Okay. And then one of them will twitch around, land on its feet, and take off. Right. Okay? That's psychological or mental behavior. Got it. Okay? So the difference between just the dropping, they're both dropping. There's physical behavior on both accounts. Way to, okay? bring, way to bring Schrodinger into this, by yeah, the way. Yeah, <laughs> I appreciate it. You know, this is Henrique's cats, all right? <laughs> so anyway, so what I'm sharing you there is there's a very important distinction between physical behavior— Got it. And mental behavior. You, and we can't just call it behavior. You have to be clear about your terms. Okay. Mental behavior is the behavior above and beyond what is happening at the matter level. Okay. Okay. okay? That's, and, and you can then say, well, how do you know it's behaving? You say, well, it exhibits functional awareness and response. Right. Versus okay? the dead cat, which exhibits. Which none doesn't of those do things. that. Right. Exactly. That's Responds how we as know a physical entity, but not, not as a exactly. psychological one. Right. Right. Okay. And in fact, we colloquial will say, well, that cat is conscious. And what we mean by that is, hey, it shows functional awareness and response and the dead cat or an anesthetized cat, which would have living processes in it, but wouldn't exhibit mental behavior if we knocked out its nervous system. Right. Okay. All right. So, so fundamental to the problem of psychology is that it fails to make that distinction? Yes. So what... So when psychologists said, oh, we are the science of behavior, they made a big mistake. They said they should have said we're a behavior of a particular kind using the term. Be actually, physics is the most general science of behavior. Right. That's the, the behavior, behavior of particles, the behavior yeah. of matter. Yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. So and that's the most general. And in fact, if you look at the tree of knowledge, you'll see the most general things matter. And it's unfolding behavior, but it's unfolding material behavior, a subset of unfolding behavior then in the planet Earth is living behavior, cells behave, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. uh, right, okay? And But they behave in a different kind of way. And then animals behave. And I argue that we should have had the term mental as the adjective that describes the ways in which animals behave so differently than plants or cells or rocks. 
Got it. Yeah, because there is this because of because of the nervous system, right? They, they, because yeah. of the nervous system, the way it processes information. Right. Now we can say, okay, there's between the animal environment, that's overt mental behavior, mm-hmm. overt meaning, and then covert mental behavior refers to the neurocognitive process. And by cognitive here, I just mean the way the nervous system sends messages and stores information. I don't mean necessarily consciously. I mean the way in which it works as an information processing system. So this the works nervous- for flatworms in a cave. This w- this is right. anything exactly. that has that has a neuron has something. Well, that, right. Actually, the transition is the emergence of the nervous system in around it's called the Cambrian explosion. If you go look that up, that's about yeah. 550 million years ago. We see the explosion really of complex active bodies and nervous systems. And actually what happened almost certainly is that two different kinds of nervous systems came together. One's a motor system, one's a sensory system. They get hooked up together and then you get a shape to the body. So you go from a jellyfish, which really isn't coordinated into a worm and then into insects and things like crustaceans and other things. Now you have a complex active body with a centralized nervous system that's sensory and moving and it's that sensory motiva- motor action that makes animals so unbelievably different. And that's the birth of mind or mental behavior. Right. Because you, because you have stimulus response, but there's, there's something that happens between the stimulus and the response that has to coordinate from one system to the other. And that coordination point, that inflection point, is exactly the, the temporal inflection point that you're talking about. That, that existence of that inflection point is the emergence of the mind and mm-hmm. and all of the and our and us having this conversation right that's right so that's, it's, you know, it's the foundation of right. it. now and the interesting the, the thing that's confusing is i'm not necessarily saying that insects so it's a great question do they have any consciousness or not so so these are language issues do they have and in fact i call this the first layer is just this basic mind which is essentially kind of robotic mm-hmm. okay it's like a nervous system that just processes input and then reacts. And we, as humans, we can relate to this because we a lot of what we do, a lot of the way we functionally respond to the environment is through non-conscious information processing, right? Right. I mean, that's, I think one of the biggest problems we have with modern society right now is how much unconscious behavior or unconscious processing we're doing. We, right. we, we, fill our, <laughs> we fill our plates with food because it makes us feel a certain way, but we don't think about what we're actually putting into our bodies. We fill our relationships with certain kinds of people. And we don't think about what that's actually doing to enrich our lives. And we, so we right. do a lot of that stuff. Yeah, unconsciously. Right. And, right. And actually, I'll use the term there. What you are referring to there, trust me, the language, what I'm trying to do is help us get clear about our language. Yeah. So there's conscious is one form. What you're meaning there was actually self-conscious. So we do it without self-conscious reflection. Okay. okay. So I might, I might be conscious of the way the cake tastes. Okay, so I can have conscious experience. Ooh, that's a chocolate cake. But I'm not aware that actually I'm trying to fill something empty inside of me. I don't have self-conscious reflection that actually I got my feelings hurt. I then felt uncomfortable. I wanted to feel safe and secure. I have a history of feeling safe and secure when I eat. So I just get up and all of a sudden I'm stuffing my face with a piece of cake so that I take the emotional pain away. If you ask me why am I doing it, it's like, I don't know who's here. But if you ask me as a clinician and we get to talk about it for a while, then you could go back and have a self-conscious awareness that you were injured, that you felt insecure, that you're trying to escape from that. And the cake helped you fill that emptiness, or at least in the short term. And then you find out actually right. uh, <laughs> you do that all the time and you're going to have a lot of problems. Right. right. If you don't if you don't have self-conscious awareness. You're going to get yourself out of sync uh, and not be engaged in very intelligent ways of living. Yeah, okay. and it creates vicious cycles, like in uh, Austin Powers. I eat because I'm unhappy, and I'm unhappy because I eat. 
right? Like you, you get, you get that, exa- that, that horrible vicious cycle from that. Right. In fact, as a clinician will tell you that really the root of what we do in psychotherapy is the entrenched maladaptive patterns that have that vicious cycle right. in them. Right. Well, I'm like, okay. So let's talk about how we can break with this. So you, you first and foremost, it's a terminology issue. Yep. Secondarily, it, uh, it, you have these different schools of thought in psychology that may or may not have resulted from this terminology problem. How do you begin to solve this issue of uh, having these branches of psychology being different with 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 the way that you approach it? Right. So, uh, so the way I approach it is I built this thing called the tree of knowledge system, mm-hmm. uh, and then it grew into the theory of knowledge overall. Okay, Uh, and I started this in 1997. Uh, I was getting trained as a clinical psychologist um, and I learned really cool stuff about how to be a clinical psychologist from these different paradigms, these different models. So I learned about behaviorism. Behaviorism is a really interesting model for thinking about um, the how the environment shapes you in a particular way, how you build your habits. Uh, There's a great book called Power of Habit. I really recommend it. Yeah, we've had, we've had B.J. Fogg on the show. Or that's well, Charles okay. Duhigg. That's Charles Duhigg. Yeah. Power of Habits. Charles Duhigg. B.J. Fogg, it's I think, tiny has habits. The, tiny habits, right? Uh, we've had well, them both the, on the show. And well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, so that's actually, when I'll use terms, sometimes I'll say mind one. Um, building those procedural systems and organizing uh, the process by which that happens non-consciously, that's all part of mind one. Okay? Okay. Um, so, so the... There are all these different models uh, of psychotherapy. There's a humanistic model, for example, from Carl Rogers and Abraham Maslow. You mentioned Abraham Maslow before. He's a human. Well, they focus super much on the first person experience of being not so much habits, but what is the core emotion of your perspective on the world? Like, mm-hmm. How do you feel in your heart? And what they were worried about was that we want to create a relational system where that feels known and valued and accepted. And if you do that, that core of the emotional person's heart will grow into its potential. Okay. Okay. So they were actually focused originally on what I call mind two. Mind two is that first person experience of being in the world, not with language, but in felt perception, motive, and emotional states. Okay. And what they realized is they were like, hey, People judge, and because you judge, you then try to create a social self. And because you create a social self, you're inauthentic with what your heart says, okay? And now you're trying to negotiate, try to trying to be the way other people want you to be. And I realized, gosh, if we could create a system where people could have their heart known and valued and not be judgmental and we could manage social judgments in a healthy way, that would be a great set of insights. And I believe the humanistic tradition has a lot of insights to teach us about our felt experience of being. You, you know, okay. you talk about in a healthy way, right? Because because I think I think people are, I, I think especially nowadays, right? People are are so absolute in their in their processing. Like either they are all in on what other people mm-hmm. think, or they are completely detached from what other people think, or they like to say that they're completely detached from what other people think. But the reality is that uh, we need other people being completely tied up in what they think of us is unhealthy. And being completely dissociated from what they think of us—that's psychopathy. That's sociopathy. Brilliant. Right. Brilliant. So, mm-hmm. so we need something kind of in the middle. We need to be relating right. to right. other people in a way that is healthy and and justified with with our own goals and exactly. and pair and and morals. 
And that's a wonderful segue into another school of thought, the psychodynamic school of thought. Okay, that stems off of Freud, but the modern version is about how we're how we relate to other people, how we have motives for things like power, love, and freedom, how, whether or not we're securely attached or not securely attached. Okay, and right. what we see in those motives, for example, one of the things I'll talk about, what you just labeled, is that people have what's called a dependent or counterdependent split. Okay, the dependence split is, oh, my God, I need you. I need your approval. I'll be all social for you right. so that you like me and I stay close. Counterpoint is, like, I don't need anybody. Okay. Right. Uh, you know, I'll just rely on myself. Pop which is, music which is, versus punk. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, that's an unhealthy split on your autonomy dependency axis. What you actually need to cultivate is a healthy autonomous interdependence where you realize that I am my own person. I can make my own decisions. And at the same time, I live in a web of relationships and need to be known and valued by other people. So I have to worry. I have to manage protecting myself, but also have love of the other and are in relationship to that. So, so the psychodynamic tradition causes you to look at the relationships, core relational needs that people have, and then how they defend against them. So that's another really important angle. Okay. And then you have the cognitive tradition, for example, which is how you talk to yourself. I, mm -hmm. I spent four years with Aaron Beck at the University of Pennsylvania, and his tradition was understanding how you narrate and make sense out of the world, how you interpret the world, right. and then how you tell that to yourself and to other people, and whether you get maladaptive uh, systems. Uh, right. So that's, that's where you get the stuff where where everything is everybody else's fault, everything is well, my right. fault. You, I, you, right. If you, you blame self, blame other. Right. right. Uh, that's another classic split where you are like uh, people who are narcissists and uh, sort of aggressive borderlines or antisocial people are like, ah, screw it. everything that bad has happened. Somebody else's fault. I'm never at fault. And right. then there are other people who are fearful and timid and they're always blaming themselves right. and they. Uh, they internalize that critic. And so the cognitive view is, yeah, how do you talk to yourself? How do you interpret things? And are you accurate and adaptive in the way in which you narrate uh, the world around you and make meaning through your narration? So all of those are really, really powerful views, in my view. My point was, well, why can't they go together? Why do they have to be? Those are all interesting things. They should fit together, kind of like puzzle pieces, or like I often talk about, they're playing different instruments, but they should go together and create a music. Right. Or I, the way that Rob Scott, uh, who's our mutual friend, who who, who introduced us and, and got you on the He's show today, who's I been love on, his fundamentals, just stuff. Yeah, who's been on the who's been on the show before, and 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 I talk to now regularly. Um, the way that he said is that you look at it's the uh, the uh, the blind men describing an elephant, yep. right? So that, that you you say that every other I mean, all of these previous psychological theories are a blind man grabbing the tail of an elephant, saying, "Oh, it's this." long yeah. stringy thing with fur on the end and somebody else is holding one of the foot and he's like, no, it's this thick tree trunkish thing with, and, and none of them realize they're all describing the same thing, but they don't get a holistic view of what the animal is. And that's your point is to get a holistic view of, of how exactly. our brain works and how we interact with the world. Right. And so, and really actually also develop a language. Indeed, the first chapter in my uh, book, A New Unified Theory of Psychology uh, that, that came out in 2011 was from racing horses to seeing the elephant. And so instead of instead of putting all your money into one of the paradigms and try to research it and say, mm -hmm. oh, I'm a cognitive person or I'm psychodynamic, uh, and then having them compete as if they're trying to outrace each other right. in a race, right. back off of that horse race metaphor, and then you shift over into the elephant metaphor and you look to see the whole. Right. Right. So okay, so let's get into let's get into the whole. 
Let's get it to it. <laughs> so right. what, what is, you know, how, how do we start to unify all of these different thoughts uh, or different uh, expressions of how our, how our mind works and how our, how our mind processes and creates the behavior that, that we, that we can observe and sometimes we can't. Um, yeah. So get, get us going on that. So we have the right. tree of knowledge system is the, is sort of the fundamental thing that this idea right. that, uh, at every level we interact with the, the world around us. So at the material right. level, the biological level, the mental level, and then you, you extend it to cultural level. Exactly. So let's, uh, so let's say I can, I'll give an overview as I even tell my doc students, you know, learning my system is a bit like learning a language. So it's, you know, it's sort of like, okay, I'm going to learn French. It's like, all right, well, yeah. <laughs> it takes a little while, but Bonjour. we can get through the basics, right? Yeah. Here we go. So there's a matter object level. That's your basic material, physical, uh, layer dimension of existence or plane of existence. Then there's cell life. Okay. Then there's animal mental, and then there's culture person. Okay, so uh, one of the things then to realize is that according to the system I have, there's these different um, planes of existence. Okay, so if we understand ourselves as different planes of existence, now from a psychological, from a human psychological perspective, one of the most important things I want to teach people is to help you understand yourself as a primate and help you understand yourself as a person. Okay. okay. All right. So, so uh, as a primate, that's just if uh, none of that frontal lobe stuff, none of that prefrontal cortex, uh, like the, the, just the, the stimulus response level of things, but primates have social as well. So it's a little right. Bit... So primates are really complicated creatures. Right. Okay. There's a whole Franz de Waal has a great thing called chimpanzee politics. They, they have power needs. They have love needs. They can, uh, they can do a little bit of imagining what other people do. They form alliances. They care for their young. Uh, they're really rich complicated creatures. What they don't do is they don't tell stories and they don't justify why they do what they do. Okay. So your primate self is the, per right. you have, I'm going to borrow from this guy, John Verveke, who's a good friend of mine, a great cognitive scientist. He has the four P's of knowing. Okay. Four P's of knowing. So the first is a procedural P. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that's just your basic like habit system. And that's something we have with virtually all other animals, okay? So that's just how do you learn to do something sort of rigid across a recipe automatically in a context, okay? okay. That's procedural, okay? Then you have perspectival. Perspectival is your first person, like what I call experiential, but that's your first person. That's what goes offline when you fall asleep. And when you wake up in your eyes, <laughs> you're sort of like, hey, okay? All right, you wake up. And then your self-conscious is your propositional. That's how you talk to yourself. Then you're like, oh, I am awake, and what do I need to do today? That's my right. self-conscious propositional, okay? And then the final P is your participation. And that's kind of like what you actually engage in and the activities and how you are and relating and trying to get stuff done, okay. okay? So if we talk about your primate self, your primate clearly has a procedural and perspectival and it participates in certain relations with others, like caring for young, gaining food. Mutual grooming. You know, exactly. Yeah. All of that kind of stuff. And then it's your propositional self-conscious knower that's telling the story about why things are going on. And it's listening to political arguments and it's listening to things for making sense, um, all sort of analytic knowledge for trying to make sense. And that's your person. That's actually how you plug in to the culture person plane. So you have this self-conscious narrator. All right. That's one part of your psychology. Super important. And then that sits on top of a primate that's seeing, feeling, eating, engaged in particular kinds of action. OK. 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 So so now it's the relationship between that 
how do we map that primate mind? Okay. Mm -hmm. the, the, what does that go into that? How do we understand that? Um, and then how do we understand the nature of the talking mind that connects us to the culture person dimension? So, and what is the relationship between those two minds? Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. So what, yeah. What is that relationship? So we have this, this sort of the, what you're talking about, this level of higher function that mm -hmm. has to do with language and then, and then how, how we relate to the world around us using this sort of language, higher function level than how then we relate to other individuals and the, and the cultural writ large in that way. Right. Exactly. So, so um, yeah. How do, how does that begin to change? How does that, how do yeah. we begin to understand that? Okay. So we can actually, I really, I like to start with what are the key insights that other people have had. Um, and we can start with this. So if we have this basic insight that I'm offering, and then I can map that on the tree of knowledge, there's some animal mind level, there's the person culture level. If we go back the first uh, to some key insights in psychology, uh, a guy that pops up pretty early is Freud. Yeah, well, yeah. Okay? very early. Right? right? Very early, right? And major. Well, let's just talk about what Freud's fundamental observations were, okay? Not as deep theories, but he was an unbelievably astute observer of the human condition, okay? Yep. Um, and what he saw, what we can, if you remember what, he, you know, sort of the standard, what's called the structural model, remember that's id, ego, superego, mm -hmm. okay? Id, ego, superego. So what did Freud see? Freud saw with the id that we had this animalistic urge, okay, that we, what we desired things, that we had aggressive impulses, that we had sexual impulses, that we had feelings, okay, and that were sort of, that related to our deeper, more animalistic natures, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. He also saw that we lived in a society that had rules that told us what was acceptable, Okay. Right, right. What's justifiable? What would we be rewarded for? How would we be like our parents and then he was, become? He was in the Victorian era too, so he was totally so so. John, talk about rules. <laughs> yeah, rules about sex and aggression in particular. Man, <laughs> yeah, those guys right. were pretty uptight. Yeah. Uh, okay. So in terms of why did Freud? That's a great point because you want to put Freud in a particular social historical context and the culture that is the justification systems that Freud was a part of really were very, very repressive. And, ri <laughs> and very rigid. I mean, there, there was... About sex, aggression, about social properness, yeah, right? Yeah. So there was this unbelievable, with that rigidity, as they tried to be cultured or civilized, mm -hmm. that's the word, they try to be more cultured, they create more and more tension with the impulsive animal side. At least that was Freud's fundamental argument. And that he said that you built an ego, a self-system, that tried to navigate the reality of the demands of the culture that you would then internalize with your superego and your animalistic urges that you were born with based on, well, You're being in. an evolved animal. Yeah. Okay? Uh-huh. All right. So, so the first thing that we can say is actually with this updated model that you're both a cultured person and a primate and that you have to sort of navigate what the rules of society are and how other people judge you and have certain kind of perhaps more primitive urges, that actually makes good sense. Okay, that's Brain a good was, model. I mean, it, yeah, I can, and and he absolutely was in a uh, pressure cooker of that of that observation. Right, right, right. We're, and we're, exactly. So, and then what we can say is, well, what is the relationship between that animal side, mm -hmm. okay, and our human private narrator and the public world that we're in? What is the, What is that? Is that relationship? How is that aligned in general? Okay, and and in fact, I will argue 
uh, from my theory, and actually there's an enormous amount of empirical data, let's talk about a healthy alignment between those two, between those three. So imagine that you have an experiential system that say, that is really invested and engaged in creative art for some reason. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you interact and you participate and you find an expression, all right? And then your narrator says, oh, I believe that this is beautiful, okay? And you create this and then you share it with people and everyone else says, oh my God, that's unbelievably beautiful. You're really, really skilled. That's really important. Uh, Great, okay? Now what you have is harmony between the intuitive valuing process, Mm -hmm. okay? Your narrator wanting to value that, then you share that in the relationship world. And then if you're loved, known and loved for giving what is authentically true, then that's going to be unbelievably nourishing. Right, right. Okay. Okay. So the harmony between your heart, your head and your relational world is fundamental to nourishment. And if you achieve that, you'll be have belonging, esteem needs, and you'll be on your way to self-actualization. Right. Okay. Okay. Now the problem is, that doesn't always happen. No, <laughs> right, <laughs> right. So you have that. You have your observations. Your what you present of yourself to the world, and it can often be rejected. Um, exactly. And then that can create. I, I, in reading through your stuff before we did this interview, you talk. You talk about the brain's immune system, the defensive system, and then that can and that defensive system can override some of the more pure, uh, expressive elements, and then that and and can cause sort of trauma. And that those those rigid and and negative behavior patterns that we were talking about before, because once the defensive system kicks in, you start to you you cope. That's what mm-hmm. coping. That's exactly. literally what coping. Well, well right. The, we have a defensive system because we we have we come into the world as primates. Okay, mm-hmm. we want to be known and valued, so we start to express ourselves in particular ways. But we bump into the world. Okay, and we are certain ways that are not known and valued because other people are trying to get known and valued, and it's inherent that there's going to be conflict. Okay, uh, and like if you're, you know, if I had kids, if they were kind of sick and I'm really tired and they're screaming the whole time, uh, guess what? As a parent, I don't want to attend to this anymore. It's driving me insane. Right. Right. As any parent that's ever had kids knows that their honest expressions of who they are can drive you insane. It's, you know, as a parent, it is so refreshing to have a clinical psychologist tell me, use the word insane, because I often feel insane. But no. to have the to have it given that amount of value is, is very meaningful to me. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and so your primate gets pissed off. Shut the hell up, kid. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And then we get taught, oh, my gosh, I would then have the narrator be, oh, my God, that's not justifiable. I shouldn't feel that way. Right. Right. So now I have to say I shouldn't feel this way. And let's face it, our emotions, they carry unbelievably important, valuable information about our needs. Mm -hmm. Okay, but they also evolved in a different context. They prep us for very quick powerful action. So they want action expression for the here and now. That's where that's the environment in which they were evolved in. Okay. So it is the case that it would be not okay for you to go over and backhand your kid. Right. Right. Even though the aggression of the frustration might have been primed a particular way. So we do need society and that does require us to regulate our emotion. Right. right? Otherwise we'd have we'd have tribal warfare all the time. It'd be right. all sorts of trouble, yeah. okay? So we cannot be acting on our emotion. But so the trick, and this is what we don't we don't learn, we don't learn how to f- listen to the emotion with awareness and attunement. Oh, yes, of course, I'm exhausted. I've got to get this thing done tomorrow. My kid's colicky and screaming. It's driving mm-hmm. me insane. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of course it would drive you insane. 
That's a, that's what your primate system is designed to tell you. Of right, course. Right, right, right. And then you then you then say, well, given that information, what is it that I need to do? What's the adaptive path forward? It's called the emotional sweet spot, which holds the emotion and awareness and attunement on the one hand, and then adaptively regulates it, given what your current goals are and what your long-term goals are. Okay. So, so that's, if you hold that emotion with awareness and attunement and adaptive regulation, what you're doing there is you're creating a good relation between your person culture mind and your primate mind. Right. Okay. And that, that relation is one of the, as a clinical psychologist, I see that relation going crazy because People have negative feelings and then they're taught, I shouldn't have negative feelings or this is bad or somebody else is to blame for them. Or what do I do with them? Maybe you have a disease. Okay. And then they start talking to themselves like, how do I get rid of this? What is this bad? What five steps can I do to get rid of this feeling? And the first thing is actually just listen to the feeling. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just it's telling you something. And that's the basis of, of sort of mindfulness meditation. Yeah, exactly. That's that's the thing where we slow ourselves down and we say, what is this? How can I react to it? And sort of separating the emotion from mm-hmm. the reaction. So saying here, why am I feeling this way? And then what mm-hmm. is the best way to react to it? Not what is the most primal way to react to it, but what Amen. is the best way to react to it given the higher functions that we've been describing up until this point? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. So training individuals to welcome the emotion and ask, what is this for, for me? What is this doing for me? Rather than why is this doing this to me? Right, right, right. It's for you. Okay. Uh, And then as you hold it with awareness and attunement and ask that with skill, then you can say, well, how can I use it for me, for my future self going forward? Right. Okay. And, and that is the way you want to talk to your heart. So if I feel like I, I have this inherent need for other people's approval okay is that healthy maybe not can i use that drive to make uh, a company that's going to change the world in this way or am I, can i use that drive to motivate me to to do the things that i know that that future thinking version of myself would like to would like to build can i use that motivator yeah i, I think that's exactly right to to think in terms of at least let me put was it is how how do i become aware and attuned to it. So then where does that come from, right? Then you want a narrative that says, oh, and you might learn, oh my gosh, actually when I was five or seven, I was rejected on the school ground. And ever since then, I came really sensitive to any kind of rejection. Maybe you learn that. Or you learn that you just have a temperamental reaction that needs to be connected people. Okay, that's really good. So now what do I, how do I want to use that energy? What is it? What are my other needs? What are my goals? What kind of person do I want to be? And now I can actually I want to, uh, how do I create an adaptive relationship to that rather than with a battle with it? That's what so often happens, what's called actually neurotic loops. A neurotic loop is when the person side gets super pissed at the feeling side, okay, mm-hmm. and then starts getting all critical, okay? It's a, it says, don't do this, rejects it, it resists, it gets insistent, okay? There's actually even an acronym we developed called CRITIC, which is the way that t- you talk to those feelings, all right. And then that what what happens that I like to suggest, uh, you know, if you were imagine at a restaurant. All right. Yeah. When we used to go to restaurants. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> remember were, that. Right. Remember that. Yeah. And we would be, you know, you might go to like a city restaurant and be right next to. And I have people imagine a parent and a child. OK. And the child's all kind of whiny. Oh, I didn't get this. This didn't right, happen. Right. The parents says, you know, just hush up. I'm always dealing with you in this way. God, you know, stop it. 
Yeah. All right. Yeah. Wow. Right? It's like you're in my house. No. And then what happens? Either the kid rejects that and then blows up and then you have an overt conflict or mm -hmm. the kid shrinks and says, okay. But of course, inside the kid's heart, it's not like all of a sudden, oh, thanks, mom or dad. I really appreciate that insight that I was being whiny. And now that you brought it up to my attention, I feel so much better. Right. No, the system just basically gets inhibited. It gets actually more injured, but now scared. So now it has scared inhibition on top of it, right? Mm -hmm. um, or it's going to reject itself completely and go ballistic. Well, that's the basic same relationship that we have with our feelings. So you have to parent your feelings in the right way, create a supportive and also somewhat challenging relationship with them, mm -hmm. which is like, I'm going to listen and be attuned to you, but I'm also not going to act on your every impulse and, and be subject to your every whim. I can, I don't have to do that as an adult. Okay. Right. I can, I can be mature in relationship to what you're telling me. I can understand how you have your needs, how I might have other needs. There are other emotions inside me. And then how do I create the proper in the short-term response and the long-term response that allows me to use this information and be attuned to it. And that's the that's a, an example about how we're helping our primate and person minds get along inside of our head. We are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about how to apply this unifying theory of knowledge to uh, to managing your own emotions, stressors, and trauma. Okay, so, I mean, look, I want to get to, there's two things I want. One is I want to keep talking about how to use your modeling of, uh, of, of the mind and, and of, uh, of, our, of our psychology, of our behavior, of the, what we've been talking about. Yep. <laughs> I want to talk, I'm, 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 trying, I'm trying to use my words so carefully yeah, right yeah, now. it's fine. Because Listen, it's so I, I, specific. No. <laughs> um, so your modeling of how we can unify psychology, I want to talk more about how we can use that to undo and and use it for you know personal evaluation and like so we just talked about okay I, I acknowledge the emotion and then I find a healthy way to deal with it or I, I try to think of what the best by taking those by separating the two from going from uh, uh, experiential reactionary separating the reaction out and uh, and then and then having the dualistic conversation not having the dualistic conversation as it comes in um, or the idea of you know moralizing of what I have to do with it right away. So I want to talk about how we can do that in a healthy way as much as possible because I feel like we are reacting so much to things. And then I want to talk more about your tree of knowledge inflection points because I know that you think we are at a new inflection point and I want to talk about I want to talk about that in a little bit. So first and foremost, how can we use these ideas? And obviously, if you're having serious problems right now, you should talk to a clinician. You should be with you should talk to somebody who can understand your behavior may or may not be able to prescribe you meds, but at least somebody that can that can give you, that can help contextualize what you're going through. And by the way, I say that as a, as a big fan of talk therapy. I think having somebody that you can talk this stuff out with is really important. So if you're really struggling right now, please find somebody to talk to. It can be a friend, it can be a clinician, but find somebody. But for the, for, for the, if you're just mm -hmm. like, man, I'm stuck at home alone right now, are my behaviors acceptable or not? How do we begin to unpack that? Brilliant. Yeah. So, uh, Let's let's just divide up. So uh, we're going to so there's the habit mind. We'll call that mind one. OK, so the habit mind is just what you sort of automatically do and what are your actual routines? OK, so and, and most everyone knows intellectually and it's a lot harder to do than it is. to. But almost everyone can hear. Well, what's a healthy habit? Right. right. System. OK. And I often talk about C's as an acronym. Okay. So, so the first thing is sleep. Sleep's really crucial. Oh yeah. 
Oh, right? yeah. How many times so, are we going to have to talk about that? Yeah. There you go. Okay. So you want to have a, a circadian rhythm to your whole biophysiology and sleep's really important. Right. Okay. So then eating. What are you putting into your system and right. what's the rhythm of are you putting it in? Right. Okay. So then exercise and activity. All right. Are you on a screen all day? Are you in nature at all? Okay. Yeah. Uh, these are the kinds of what is your level of physical activity engagement? What's your level of body movement? What's your nature involvement? Okay. Right. Uh, then uh, your sexual activity. How do you relate to your sexual drives? Are they expressed in the way that you desire? What is the relationship between you know that in terms of your core desires and your opportunities? Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, and then finally, your substance use. That would be prescribed meds and not prescribed meds. How <laughs> yeah. often are you putting uh, certain kinds of chemicals in your system to achieve particular effects? And what feedback loops are those having on your overall physiology? I personally like ethanol that's been processed mm -hmm. by yeast <laughs> in yep. the form of beer. That's, uh, right. that's a great right. chemical. Which I, I love that chemical too. <laughs> but here, let's talk about it in relationship to then. So that's your, those are the basics. So how do you get a healthy see, see yourself in a healthy life pattern. Right. So, you know, so there you go. That's a, there's an acronym for that. So that, and that creates the rhythm of your mind and your daily life. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's embedded in your procedural system. Then we jump up to your experiential and in particular, the relational aspect of that experiential system. Okay. Right? That's your felt sense in the relational world. Do you feel known at your core? And I don't mean narrative wise, but do you feel at your core that you're known and valued by important others? Okay. Or are you neither, which is a nightmare. Okay. Right. So if you're not known and valued, believe me, you are lacking crucial psychological nourishment. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so that's friends, that's groups that you belong to, that's romantic partners, that's your family, your his family of origin, your current family, your identity with other kinds of uh, human expression, okay? So that's that, you're tracking your place in the relational matrix, and it's how rich are you known and valued versus not, okay? Mm -hmm. um, and, and that is really, really key. And uh, if you're not feeling known and valued, well, you're going to have anxiety, loneliness, low self-esteem, that kind of issue. Right. Okay. It's like poor psychological nourishment. And that's the fundamental uh, issue. And then your emotions start reacting in relationship to that nourishment. Mm -hmm. And they're also, they react depending upon how you relate to them and how, whether or not you're really aware and attuned to them or not. Okay. Or whether you're... Tr um, not out of tune with them. And the other thing that's very key about your emotions is your trauma history. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, so many can... of us are dealing with that on so many levels. And, and, and right. by the way, what we're going through right now is well, a new it, traumatic it, moment. A, um, a collective, right? And yeah. then other people are dealing with their specific things and then we get exhausted in particular yep. ways. Well, when your body drops into a trauma, it goes pretty primitive. It's an, really a fusion of perspective and emotion and action, okay? And then you have these rigid modes in there that are active and brutal, and then you have secondary reaction to those, and of course, whatever it means for your life. So the trauma issue is really key about how you relate to your um, mind too, which is your experiential feeling system. And mm -hmm. that gets embedded. There's a good book called, you know, the the body keeps the score. It's how that system's embedded. And then there's your most, so that's mind one's their habit. Mind two is this feeling relational perceiving system. Okay. And then mind three, this is your talking narrating system. Right. All right. And now the question is, how do we get harmony? What, what, how, what's the best way to relate to those? And I built a system uh, that is based on mindfulness. Uh, it it's an psycholo integrative psychological approach to mindfulness 
that helps you both understand those three binds and put them in, in a context, okay? And then when you get bumped, okay? So something happens and somebody gets, you know, pisses you off. They mm -hmm. cut you off when you're driving, right? Your boss calls you up, your kid scream, you know, screams in a particular way. Um, what happens to us initially is that we get defensive, okay? And then if we're not regulated, we will either react. We'll react in a freeze, we'll react in a fight, we'll react in a flight, or we react in a fawning sort of way, which is like, oh, we'll try to make it all nice and pretend everything's fine. Those right. are actually oh, the four wow. ways in which we react. Okay? Well, I mean, when you put it in that context, right, where we think, oh, no, if I'm doing, if, if I'm doing those other two, so you uh, uh, say, say the four Fs again, you have fight, uh, flight, freeze, fawn. flight, uh, fight, or fawning. Right. Fawning is like, I'm just going to be submissive I've, and defer. I've heard freeze added to the fight or flight system. But I have mm -hmm. not heard fawning yet, and that is that is a really interesting thing. That is that yeah. Uh, yeah. But that but you're absolutely right. That is absolutely a way that we react to uh, emergent trauma like that. It's right. Incredible. So if you have what's called an agreeable uh, interpersonal style and strong dependency needs, uh, and you need to be connected to somebody, some trauma happens, you go to fawning right away. <gasps> I'm sorry, it's all fine, no problem. Mm. Okay. You immediately absolve all responsibility, adopt a submissive other orientation. It's essentially an instinctive interesting. mode. Interesting. 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 Yeah. All right. What? So, so, so darn, I wish I hadn't say that, you know, I, I, and, and now I feel, oh, now I'm bad and I haven't thought this through and in, I am, I'm not living up to my expectation. Okay. Uh -huh. So n now you have a secondary critic that enters the system and judges the system for the negative original response. And that critic can sort of re- uh, reinforce these these maladaptive behaviors and create mm -hmm. the sort of patterns that we've been we've been right. talking about this which whole time. Exactly why I call it a neurotic loop, which means there's the reaction, which is a problem, and then you have the secondary reaction, which is even a more of a problem, and it closes down on a maladaptive loop. Wow. Okay. okay. So right, now so what we want to do is we want to figure that out loop. break that loop. Okay. Yeah. What do, what is what is the necessary elements to break that loop? Okay. And this is where calm MO comes from. That's what it is. It's a prescription for the principles and processes for how to break that loop and turn it into a much more adaptive loop. And this is what right? I love so much. I mean, I, I, I want to get to calm MO, but this is, uh, this is what I love so much about meditation and prayer is that what you're doing is you are quieting a lot of that stuff and you are, you are being so present in the moment that you can begin to unpack some of those maladaptive things on your own, some of those maladaptive right. cycles on your own. That's right. Just by stopping, focusing on the breath, letting those thoughts come and go, it is so much harder. And by the way, like that, that's one of the things that I, I happen to love about it. It's so much harder than you even realize. I, if you say, sit quietly and focus on your breath for 15 minutes, people go, well, that's stupid. If anybody can do that. Try it. No doubt. Just no, try very it. Hard. And, you, and you'll start to hear that critic in, in, very loud vo in a very loud voice. You go, oh my gosh. That's the critic. It allows you yeah. to, when you when you do that, it gives you the power to see the uh, these the parts of the cycle that you that normally happen so quickly you can't identify them. That's what I love so much about it. Anyway, calm MO. Boom. Well, that's a that's a wonderful description. And what is all mindfulness elements are about, okay, are, are creating mindfulness instead of mindless reacting, right. which basically turns into I'm going to increase the expansive awareness of the underlying processes that are operative. So I'm going to I'm going to broaden my spotlight of awareness. And that's what meditation will train you. It uh, also trains you on acceptance so that you don't actually have to be a hair trigger reaction. So if you sit in a meditative state and all of a sudden your nose itches, 
right? You actually learn the process by which you're not going to itch your nose. You can observe something. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then you can be present with it. All right. And that's a wonderful coping uh, capacity. A lot of people have no idea how to tolerate the negative emotion and mindfulness teaches you both awareness and acceptance. Well, man, I feel bad because I would just itch my nose. But anyway, keep going. Okay. Well, <laughs> the, I mean, but that's the whole, the whole point of it is, is that expansion of the witnessing function. Right. Okay. But that's meditation. I'm actually talking about a more uh, psychological mindfulness, mm -hmm. which basically means that I'm not necessarily involved in meditation, although I do some of that, but not a lot. I am the psychological mindfulness means that kind of like a psychologist, you all of a sudden you pause and you become aware of what's going on to be to have a narrative capacity to understand the process. OK, so it, it, it's not many much of meditation is really on mind two that's focusing on the witness mm -hmm. and the attention. Uh, this is more a mind three, which is cultivating a particular kind of attitude of the narrator. Okay. So how am I going to talk to myself and talk myself through where I am? Okay. Okay. Calm MO. All right. And the MO stands for a metacognitive observer. A meta meta means beyond or above. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's 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 training yourself to as though you could step outside the stream of consciousness and observe it. Right. Okay. So like how would somebody else see you? If you and this takes practice, it's called mentalizing. You have the capacity to be like, oh, what would I look like from a third person perspective? Or how, would, uh, how could I see myself as if I were somebody else? Step outside my body and reflect uh, back on me. That's what a metacognitive observer is. It's the ability to cultivate an attention that steps outside the stream and reflects back on and observes the stream itself. And uh, that is a uniquely human experience. That's a uniquely human experience. In fact, it's a self Awareness squared in the sense that it's self-awareness of self-awareness and the rest of the process. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very high level, and it takes practice that doubles MO, doubles as modus operandi, and I tell that people so that they can understand that actually, you know, I can tell you this just like I could tell you how to play basketball. Listening to how to play right. basketball doesn't mean you play basketball. No, look, <laughs> a, a physicist can understand the uh, aerodynamics of a basketball, the spin ratio, <laughs> right. the, vol the, 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 the amount of force required, vertical versus horizontal force, in order to get a ball into the hoop. They're not going to be J LeBron James one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah, clearly, right? right. Uh, not even close. So anyway, this is, a, this is an embodied practice, okay? So I, how do I, when I get bumped by life, and I don't always do it perfectly by any stretch, uh, the goal is, okay, I'm going to activate this calm MO attitude. And so I'm going to have this matter. And then you have the word calm, okay, which basically is I'm going to be aware and attuned to my feelings, but I'm not necessarily going to be impulsively and mindlessly reacting on them, all right? Mm -hmm. And then it's an acronym, okay, that holds the key elements of, that you want to cultivate in this mindful attitude. So instead of being critical, rejecting, resisting, insistent, what are you? The C stands for curiosity, okay? Curiosity. So what that means is you adopt an open attitude of authentic wonderment about what is actually happening. Why am I feeling the way I'm feeling? How does this connect to what other people are feeling and why are they feeling this? What is my history? How do I build a narrative of my heart my head, my relational world, my development that actually allows the most rich understanding, okay, of what's happening. So mm. curiosity opens you up to not to allow yourself to narrate your heart, your head, your relational world, okay? And then you get practice with it. This is why self-awareness is so important to achieve insight like in psychotherapy. So you can be like, "Oh, I know what kind of person I am." 
know, I know this history, or I know that I tend to be a little neurotic about these things because of this history. And now I know, oh, I know this about myself. And sometimes knowing, just acknowledging it and being cognizant of it is all you need to begin to break the behavior. Once you know it. We know that empirically, that's absolutely good. Just labeling emotion can actually bring integration, make you feel better. Okay. So curiosity allows you that rich textured narrative, heart, head, and the other in in the developmental history. Okay. Then acceptance is... I am just going I this is what all the great Eastern traditions taught you about how to be detached and and be present and be. The world is what it is. Okay. Yeah. And I'm gonna be present with what is. Uh, Rob Scott talks a lot about this. Okay. I'm I don't need to make a judgment about this. I'm not gonna try right. to this is horrible, this is good. I'm gonna control I'm simply going to be learn to be present. So right. acceptance fundamentally is about that. L stands for loving compassion. Okay, so most of us are trying to do the best they can. I believe humans warrant dignity. I'm going to adopt an attitude toward both self and other uh, that wishes that you weren't suffering, that respects the fundamental dignity that you have uh, and and has compassion for the difficulties that we both have. And the idea that we're probably just trying to do the best they can, even though we might be acting like an idiot. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, but that's probably just because we're overloaded. We're traumatized. We don't have the right skill set We're we're scared. We're trying to do the best we can. Yeah. Okay. So, and then finally, yeah, yeah go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, I just, I just want to make sure that like we're, we're I want to make, we're doing the 30,000 foot view of Calm MO real fast. So just, you know, uh, taking a moment, stopping, calming yeah. the body. I mean, that's where the calm comes in, yeah. right? This idea right. that you, and then acknowledging the emotions as they arise mm-hmm. and, um, and separating your reaction from the emotion, learning to identify them. And in identifying them, you can begin to break those patterns. Um, Brilliant. And, and that's, you have to practice that. But that mm-hmm. and, and meditation is a is a help in, in practicing that, but yep. it is not the only way to practice that. But you begin to practice that I, stepping away, acknowledging it's why I mean, this is the same fundamentally the same basic idea of when anger management tells you to count to 10 before you respond. Right. If it's very similar to that. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought the body because actually there are three levels I like to emphasize. So one is right into the body physiology. And then the other is into your feeling and thinking. So that's a, you know, sort of mind one into your body. Mm -hmm. Be aware of that. Take your deep breath, do your physiology, do your centering. Okay. Then mind two into mind three, which is your feeling thinking. That's, you know, we call that your normal mind. All right. Mm -hmm. And then your spirit, which I like to think about what's your ultimate concern? What's your ultimate mattering and purpose? How Mm -hmm. do you think about yourself? So calm, uh, when you get more into this, it's calm mind, calm body, calm I mean, calm body, calm mind, calm spirit. Mm-hmm. So you layer, in, and I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to orient to myself and the body, where I am in, in sort of in this insolment moment of my feelings and my relationships, and then where do I want to be in transcendence, and what is my ultimate mattering and my ultimate concern, mm-hmm. okay? And that does bring me to M then, which is this motivated then uh, to, uh, toward, to grow to, uh, toward valued states of being. Um, so this is then, this is the kind of, okay, I'm going to lean into becoming the more adaptive, fulfilled, self-actualized, uh, person, uh, that I can be. And what this does is it creates a tension where the A is on being, and then the M is on becoming. Okay. So, so this is a very, to hold, I'm going to be, all right, yes, I can accept where I am. And I also will cultivate where I want to become. 
Okay. And I'll do that based on my body values, uh, my mind values, my spiritual values, uh, which are, you have to have clarity, values, clarity. Uh, there, there's uh, act, uh, there's acceptance and commitment therapies, a particular kind of therapy is fairly popular. It talks about committing to your values, having like eulogy values. Like, what do you want to say when people, uh, after you pass, what mm. would they tell you about this person? Well, those can be the kinds of valued guides to say, well, given that, how do I cultivate how I want to become in this yeah, moment? Yeah, it's deathbed so, thinking. It's like the Stoics, yeah, right? Which exactly. is sort of the Western exactly. equivalent of Eastern philosophies of Stoicism. Really? Where, where the idea is memento mori. Remember that you will die. Remember mm -hmm. death. You There, there will right. be a... T so do that. Behave today in the context of knowing that you will one day shuffle off this mortal coil. You will... You really? will no longer be, and how do you want to be remembered? And and then also, how empowering is that to do the things that you are scared to do? Because you're going to die anyway. Brilliant. And I was just at a conference, a big history conference that was titled, I thought brilliantly titled, How to Be a Good Ancestor. <laughs> yeah. Okay? Yeah. You know, talk about that, right? Sort of like, yeah, what, what legacy are we leaving behind for our children so that they look out and say, man, I'm really glad that guy made the choices they did given where I am in this in this train. By the way, right. one great way to be a good ancestor is to journal so that people can know what you were thinking as yeah. you're thinking it. Incidentally, a fantastic way of employing CommMO because when mm -hmm. you journal, to put, to put thoughts into words, as we've been talking about going from mind mm -hmm. one to mind two to mind three, to put thoughts into words, uh, you end up engaging more of your mind in the process of understanding your your behaviors and feelings and uh oh, and thoughts 100%. of the day and then you can then therefore that'll calm you down enough to be able to process it in a third party way which is what we've been talking about with commo so that you can then behave differently or at least acknowledge the core uh, emotions for your behavior within the next 24 hours it is and it is is, is such a fundamental thing that has been talked about a lot on the show Brilliant. Well, and James Pennybaker really, uh, there's a particular writing style that's especially conducive to exactly what you said. So uh, James Pennybaker's work on actually how to write about your feelings, to cultivate mm -hmm. exactly the kind of growth processes uh, that you described, uh, that's been well documented, yeah. that if you do it in a particular way, it'll be especially effective. And that's, uh, that's great. Good for you now and good for your progeny. Okay. So we, I love CommMO, and I think if people want to follow up with CommMO, uh, Dr. Henriquez, how, what is the best way for them to, to follow up with that and to get sort of resourced in how they can do that? Right. So I have created a web page, uh, and this gets into my theory of knowledge web page. Uh, if there's show notes or whatever, but there is a CommMO uh, under the TOKsociety.org. Uh, and then there's one of the eight key ideas, and it has a lot of, it's got a video, uh, two little video productions, there's a bunch of articles on it. Okay, so I'll put a link to directly to the COMMO mm -hmm. website, Perfect. as well as the TOK Society in general, the Theory yep. of Knowledge Society in general website in the show notes. Okay, I've kept you for a really long time mm -hmm. between the actual <laughs> recording and the talking that we've done uh, before. But I do want to talk about these inflection points, right? We, we, yep. we were talking briefly before we started about... Right. Um, about how you know it, it, that there are these information transfer systems uh, that that have occurred at different phases in the development of life. So from from the material information transfer system to the uh, to the biological into life using DNA into the mind, which is what we spend a lot of time talking about, the mind culture transfer system. Uh, you believe right now that we are at a new 
inflection point from this general mind culture, which is like the social structures that we have that we've been discussing for the last hour, into something new that is, uh, it is a reason why so much of the world is in unrest right now. You, can we talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So uh, in 1997, I sort of had the flash of insight that gave rise to the tree of knowledge structure. Uh, that is a way to understand the unfolding of uh, cosmic evolution, the, you know, from the Big Bang to the present, across four different uh, planes of existence, matter, life, mind, and culture, exactly as you articulated. Okay. So, but what it says is that there are these different qualitative jumps. There are a lot of little jumps, but there are really these after matter, three giant jumps. Okay. So the difference between inanimate matter into living matter, that's mm -hmm. huge. Mm -hmm. All right. And then the difference into uh, living matter into feeling conscious animal matter, <laughs> right. animal. Okay. That's huge. And then from animals into self-conscious talking humans, that's huge. Okay. Yeah. That's what the argument is. And you look at the behavior patterns of uh, cells and animals and persons. And I think you can make, yeah, no, there's a big difference between those yeah. things. Okay. So then why, what is it that really drove it? And I saw based on, you know, the lens that I had that, yeah, just as you said, what happens with cells? Well, they have an information storage system, like with DNA, that then creates an information transfer with RNA. And then you build cells that then talk to each other. So you've got an information processing communication system, and that's fundamental as to why cells and life is so different than matter. Okay. Right. I mean, and, uh, and RNA literally is divided into two different types. There's messenger RNA and there's regular RNA, and, and the whole point of them is to transfer the data of, of DNA mm -hmm. into the function of a protein. That is, exactly. That is, that's exactly. what its function is. Right. And then there's even more feedback loops, but whatever. That's the basic issue. That's exactly right. Then we get into the emergence of a nervous system, okay, uh, which is its own kind of, which networks cells together mm -hmm. this time to create the unity of a whole body that can move as a coordinated unit in an animal. Okay. So you have an information processing system that's tying all the cells together. And then you get animal, animal communication. Of course, look at bees and the way they waggle or the way birds talk to each other, talk in quotes, okay, communicate with each other. And that gives rise to this whole nother layer of being in the nature uh, through the animal kingdom. Uh, but that's another information processing communication system. Then what happened is that humans started using symbolic information processing, okay, to represent things with novel symbols, put them in syntax, like in the form of a language, uh, as form of a sentence, and then share them so that we now right. communicate with that, right. talk to each other in real human language, and build what are called systems of justification. So what that means is life, mind, and culture are the emergence of each information processing communication networks, and that creates a qualitative jump into a whole nother dimension of existence. So then, well, if that's true, then you look back on the 20th century. Right? right. And you're like, well, what happened? Well, you know, 5,000 years ago, we started writing. Okay. You were talking about this and that changed us. And then ultimately you built a printing press. We did that. Then we started talking about how you can compute stuff. Then we started building things that could compute stuff. Then we created computers. We created artificial intelligence. We created the internet all in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that we laid the groundwork for a whole nother information processing and communication network system. Right. Okay the digital plane of existence. We have laid the groundwork for it. So we are now setting up to go through a what I, what I call the fifth joint point, okay, which is basically the transition from culture and language being the dominant information processing system that coordinates us into creating this entire digital virtual mm -hmm. landscape. Mm -hmm. Okay, And that's going to change everything. Well, I mean, and this then is go another layer into it. We have begin, we've begun to program artificial intelligence 
to manipulate us in that digital so that so that the 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 most powerful financial institutions don't have the best individual traders they have the best algorithms the most powerful companies don't have the best marketing team they have the best algorithms so that the robots i mean we call them robots i'm not talking about um uh uh you know philip k dick or um uh, what's it, Isaac Asimov kind of robots. I mean, the actual robots that we interact with every day, the reason why uh, uh, we have to have CAPTCHA on all of our websites is because there are real robots that are manipulating us on a day-to-day basis, and they are just bits of code, algorithms 100%. that move us around. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So, so that's playing a gigantic role. And what happens when you have a novel information processing uh, and communication system is all the rules of the old system change. Think about how fast we were able to evolve relative to other animals, how quickly we just became a super predator. Right. Okay? Yeah. And the reason is because the possibilities opened up this whole new plane of existence with us talking. Okay. Right. So it changed everything. And then we built these tools and everything else. Well, now digital has opened up all these different planes. Well, and you so even think old... about, even if you think of like pre hominids, right? You've got mm-hmm. Neanderthal, Denny Sovan, and then yep. early human, you know, uh, uh, just pre Homo sapien, how that that turned into just Homo sapien because of exactly what you're talking about, right? Yep. This, this so, extended prefrontal lobe. So, so we are right in the cusp for the Cambrian explosion. You know, the last hundred years saw that was the animal explosion. The last hundred thousand years saw the human explosion. Well, the 21st century is the digital explosion. Okay. And, and it's changing everything. And we're all going crazy in part because we're right in the middle of this massive flux. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what that means is we need to wake up. You know, as a clinician, I'm always like, what is the situation you're in? And so that you can understand and gain awareness about what it is that's happening. Because if you don't have awareness, you're going to be crazy and you're going to be doing maladaptive reactions as you swat at the shadows of the world. I believe that our because we're dealing with a new thing, we're dealing with a totally new thing that's new, changing all the rules with our with our with our rigid Victorian yeah. structure of our existing yep. rules. Exactly. My friend uh, Jordan Hall calls this the blue church, like the blue church got set up in the 1950s as a particular kind of institutional structure that regulated the finances, that regulated laws, that regulated governance structures coming off of World War Two gets established as a particular kind of broadcast system Mm -hmm. and has a hierarchical exchange structure. Well, the digital world just changes all of that. Okay, for better or for worse, for both. It's it's everything. It's chaos and potential and it could be heaven and hell. You know, but uh, and but what we are right in the middle of it. So the old world is now in a a, a sort of it's out of date. But but the people with power trying to hold on. Right. And the new worlds are coming. But do they have the wisdom of the old worlds? And can they hold on to this new power in a particular kind of way? Or are we going to have massive amounts of power without much wisdom in the context of a massive culture world where everybody's going crazy? And you do all of that. Yeah. Right. And then all of a sudden you get a lot of vulnerabilities, very hard to coordinate, very hard to understand. And then, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I saw this line recently is uh, the the biggest takeaway from uh, learning from history is that people don't learn from history. Right? Yeah, is that we don't we don't right. we don't look at these inflection points properly and we don't we don't consider when we're in one. It's it's really easy to sit there in your in your college or high school classroom and look at history and go, oh, yeah, well, that'll never be us. And then when you're faced with some of the same circumstances, how you adapt uh, is is usually very rigid and and not very uh, 
backward thinking in terms of, of how you can learn from the past. So, yeah. Amen. So my hope is that if we're going to have intelligence for our life, let's understand where we are in the 21st right. century, huh? Yeah. So, uh, so you don't leave us with doom and gloom as we wrap this up. What, <laughs> what, how do we start to adapt to this new mm-hmm. system? All right. How do Listen, we, how do I, we I survive this a, new inflection point? Right. I, I have, I have, you know, based on my calculations, we have a lot of variance in terms of how this can go. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So in other words, and, and there's a lot of hope then. If we understand that what our primate self needs is to be known and valued and loved in a particular way, okay? If we build from the wisdom traditions how to hold our relationships and our emotions in a particular way and recognize that we will need that embodiment through and through, all right? Okay. Then, and that we can't just escape off of our our personhood into our digital and pretend like we're also not primates. Yep. If we can hold on to our primate and person and the digital with wisdom and guide the potential so that we create the, the fulfillment of being known and valued collectively and we shift our focus instead of, say, from the classic economic instrumental system into actually cultivating a system where there's mutual known and valued respect and that's what we actually see to be the problem that we can now solve in the 21st century, we do that. People will be born into a system where they can be loved. We can harmonize with their feelings, their heart, their head, and their relational world. And we can create a system, you know, it's not a utopia, but where it's a lot mentally healthier, where we get a lot of our basic needs met. And the cultivation of wisdom is something that cumulatively happens over the generations as opposed to its destruction. It seems like baked into that is this idea of unplugging every once in a while, right? Like you, you, in order to approach the digital in the healthy way that you're talking about, and to understand its cultural significance, you also have to reconnect with the primate. So go camping, unplug, go to a place where you can't, where you have no digital connection and reconnect with your, with your material self. Amen. My, my friend Zach Stein has a, has a really interesting sort of like, what do we need to cultivate? Well, we do need to cultivate our skill development and that might be in sort of technology or mm-hmm. whatever it is that you right, have a talent. Right, right, right. Okay? You have to understand how right. computers work. There's no way around yeah. it. You have to understand right. mathematics and computer right. science. And, right. And we need your, you need your talents and go to school and get your talents, but that's only one third Okay. There's also in what he calls ensoulment, which is basically your your that's what your experiential relationship self is. So how rich and deep do you feel? How well do you connect with other people? Mm-hmm. Can you empathize with self and other? Do you have compassion? Do you have rich relational world? And then transcendence, which is yes. What is your ultimate concern? How do you connect to uh, wisdom traditions so that you can orient and know what the co- fundamental virtues that you are trying to contribute to for over the long term that transcends your ego. So if you have skill development, if you have ensoulment, you have transcendence, we follow that, we can actually educate folks and cultivate a particular kind of world uh, that allows the 21st century to flourish. Yeah, I use, uh, not not to get very granular, but I've been very actively trying to to pay attention to the, my iPhone has a built-in time tracker for the time I spend on different apps. Mm -hmm. And particularly mm-hmm. since we've gotten into the quarantine and, and particularly since we've gotten into such a segmented society, uh, I have been actively trying to manage my attention in that way so that my interaction with the digital uh, is mm-hmm. is in the context that you're describing, right? So that yep. I'm, I'm getting the things, I'm consciously choosing to get the fulfillment, uh, the interpersonal fulfillment, the developmental fulfillment that you're talking about. Uh, and then the digital is a part of that but it is not it's not ruling me the way that it is uh, that it was uh, prior to this this situation. Brilliant. Yep, yeah. that's crucial. 
That is absolutely crucial. Well, Dr. Greg Henriquez, I've taken up so much of your time, but this has been <laughs> so amazing. Uh, I, I am, I, I am, I'm crackling right now, as they say. Sweet, man. Uh, I, I, I really I'm, enjoyed it. Great. I'm going to ask you two things, and I ask them to everybody. First and foremost, mm-hmm. if people want to follow up with you, uh, what's the best way to sort of follow up with with the work that you do? Um, feel free to shoot me an email. We can. Uh, that's uh, you can do that at h e n r i q g x at jmu.edu. Um, you can go to tok.society.org and learn about uh, the society that I lead, and uh, I'll help you connect with that if you'd like. Email address as well as the website will be in the show notes for you guys to just click, and you can, uh, you can follow up. Uh, one last thing, I ask it to everybody, what is one thing that we can all start doing today that will make our lives a whole lot better? Uh, respond to the bumps that you feel with a calm MO attitude. There you go. ComMO. Once again, direct link to ComMO in the uh, in the show notes as well. Dr. Greg Henriquez, thank you so much for your time today. This has been amazing. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank you. That's it for our show today. If you like the show, please rate, comment, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us out a lot when you do that. Uh, if you would like, and also share this with a friend, because honestly, that helps us. That helps us more than anything else. It doubles our listenership every time you share this with a friend. Guys, if you want to follow up with us, facebook.com slash John Tesh. We go live there all the time. You can also find John on Twitter at John Tesh, on Instagram at John Tesh underscore IFYL. I am Give Gerard, facebook.com slash Give Gerard at Give Gerard on Instagram and Twitter, where you can find me, where you can message me, DM me, mention me. I will respond. I try to respond to every message, DM, all that stuff, uh, because, you know, with, with suggestions about the show, things you guys want to talk about with the show, because I do the show for you guys. So thank you so much for listening.